This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Grant Schneider, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. Grant, always a pleasure to catch up. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely, Jason. Thanks for having me today. So it is literally my, one of my favorite times of the year. You know that the, the Federal Information Security Management Act report to Congress is out. There's plenty to talk to. There's a, a good news. There's some interesting news. And there's some scary news. So your typical report to Congress. So let's start with the beginning. When you read through the report, when you guys were putting together through in the federal CISO's office, in the federal CIO's office, what are some of the things that, that stood out to you? What are some of the things that you were you know, maybe even pleasantly surprised by? Yeah, so one of the things that we're, we were most pleased with is the number of agencies that achieved an overall rating of managing risk, which is exactly where we want to see agencies at. In the 2019, we were, are at 72 agencies with that rating. Um, that's up from 33 agencies in 2017. So that's a great improvement, and it really shows that agencies are, are paying attention and doing exactly what we want them to do in cybersecurity, which is taking that risk management approach to their infrastructure and protecting the things that are most critical. Additionally, I would say a couple other things in the report we were pleased with. We have a significant number of agencies now, particularly in the CFO Act agencies, that are able to remotely wipe mobile devices. That has been especially important as we've moved to a significant telework posture here in response to the COVID-19 national emergency. We've also seen an 8% decrease in the number of incidents. We're pleased with that because agencies, it shows that agency mitigation efforts are are coming into play. And we know that the actual number of of attacks and attempts into our systems continues to increase over time. Let's talk about that risk piece for a second, because I think that's, to me, also stood out. When you guys are defining managing risk, what does that mean? I know we have risk management frameworks, and we have this idea of enterprise risk management. How do you guys define it? And then, and then what does it really mean to be managing risk? We define managing risk exactly as it says, that agencies are assessing which information systems and what data sets are most critical to achieving their mission. They're applying the proper mitigations and the extra focus onto those most critical items. A year and a half ago, we updated our high value asset policy, um, which really has directed agencies to you know, do something they've done for a long time, but, but take a really hard focus at what's most critical for their mission and then takes a look at cross-government, which assets are most uh, critical to, you know, the enterprise functions, if you will. And then we're able to, you know, bring in the Department of Homeland Security to do risk assessments and uh, systems engineering reviews on those high-value assets. But I think the most critical part of that program is monitoring the, the implementation of the mitigation recommendations. And so at the end of those vulnerability assessments, uh, an agency will receive a report with recommended mitigations, and we are working with uh, Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency to track the implementation of those mitigations, which really allows us to focus where agencies, where they need to be most focused. One of the things that I think the FISMA Report to Congress talks a lot about is a lot of the out comes, meaning we have this much data going through CDM, we have this many agencies on Einstein 1, 2, and 3, we have this much 
numbers, but it doesn't really get that next level down. And how do you use that information and how do you hold those agencies accountable or, or ensure that they are managing risk in, in, the, in the best way possible? We definitely look at the adoption of tools and the implementation of capabilities. You know, we have a variety of cross-agency performance goals from the president's management agenda that, that we set for agencies um, and then we track their performance a- against. And those really become some of the indicators that go into that, you know, some of the quantitative indicators, if you will, that go into that more qualitative assessment of whether or not an agency is is appropriately managing risk um, and and really doing the due diligence and kind of asking some of the, the critical questions internally. And so I would say all of that data flows in, you know, having those tools is sort of necessary, but not sufficient. Really what it means though, is our agencies taking the data and information available to them and funneling that into their decision-making process, both from where they're investing time, where they're investing resources, where they're investing uh, in tool, other additional tools and, and how they're working to mitigate for, for the attacks that we know are out there and patch known vulnerabilities and update the systems and do kind of some of the the blocking and tackling 101 that we we want them to do on a very regular basis. That probably has been one of the biggest challenges that agencies and, and has fa- have faced over the last 20 plus years is that blocking and tackling piece. Do you get a sense based on this FISMA report to Congress and other work you guys do as you work with agencies that that blocking and tackling the 20 biggest you know cybersecurity problems that that can be easily fixed so to speak. Is that happening more and more? Like, are you having different conversations with agencies now? based on the fact that they're managing risk better? Yeah, we, we definitely are. We're, we're, and we have a lot of conversations with agencies around when a new vulnerability is identified, around where, where are agencies with patching? You know, when we had the, the Microsoft vulnerability, you know, granted, this won't have showed up in, in this FISMA report because it covered um, FY 2019. But in January, when Microsoft um, came out with the NSA identified vulnerability, you know, we had gotten with agencies uh, in advance of that announcement to get them prepared to implement that critical patch when it came out from Microsoft. And, and that was something that, you know, happened very, very quickly. Uh, and, and we spent a lot of time with DHS monitoring where agencies were at and making sure that the, they were implementing the, the patch. So, you know, I think what we've tried to get to with agencies is to have more proactive conversations like that. What are we doing to protect about something ourselves from something that's coming down the pipe as opposed to the conversations that, you know, have we protected ourselves from that, that, that vulnerability that was identified last year or the year before? Because I think as you well know, you know, and, and certainly in my own experience, all of the incidents I've been involved with uh, have been through a known vulnerability uh, that also had a known and available fix. And so, uh, you know, going to the basics still works for our adversaries. And so we have to be sure that we're closing those those holes uh, so that they're not available to them. That's actually a great segue to talk about those incidents. Obviously, the number of incidents are down by 8%. Good news there. But if you look at inside those numbers, there's a lot more concern about a couple areas. And the decrease in incidents does, that mean, does not mean that, that things are safer. It's just there's a decrease in incidents. But the number of unknown attacks and then the number of destructive or, or disruptive attacks, you know, brute force type of attacks, those are of big concern for when, when a private sector person looks at this report and sees what agencies are going through. How big of a concern is it for you? 
and then two, what, what can be done about it or how are you guys working with DHS to, to address the, those, those issues? Yeah, I, I certainly agree that the number of, um, you know, other or unknown incidents continues to be a concern for us. Um, that number did drop. So that number dropped by about 12%, um, maybe just under that from last year to this year or from 2018 to 2019, which so it had a, a bigger drop than the overall number of incidents, which I think is a good thing. But that is an area that we are working with DHS and with agencies. So in our annual FISMA guidance from this year, um, OMB memo 20-04, you know, one of the things that we put in there was for DHS to give us a monthly readout on incidents so we could, could better track things over, over more real time as opposed to everything being um, in the rearview mirror, if you will. Uh, and so also we're working with agencies through the Federal Chief Information Security Officer Council to, to ask them to, to be sure we're doing an, enough digging into what are those others. And if there's new categories we need to add, we can you know, adjust for that. Um, but unknown for, for that number is, is really not something that, that we, is where we want to be. And, and it's, a, uh, it's a challenge that we're working on this year and we'll probably be working on into the future as well. We have to take a break. My guest today is Grant Schneider, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Grant Schneider, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. In 2018, the OMB released the first ever risk determination report. It's a, a now we are two years later. Many people will call you. It's a seminal publication that you guys put out. Um, maybe there's an update coming. That'd be great to know. But one of the th- recommendations that, that was made through that risk determination report was something around called SOC, Security Operations Center as a Service, which is really all about collecting the data and then putting to use the data. What's the update on that effort? It's been a couple years now since that recommendation was was made. And, and I know we have shared services coming from DHS. How, Walk me through how, where is SOC as a service? Yeah, so um, I, I would say two things that we've done on that. One is that we've been looking at, at agencies uh, to mature their SOC capabilities. And, and of course, you know, different agencies are at different levels, um, but we've been looking for all agencies to, to raise the bar there. And, and one of the, the ways that we know we want to do that is the focus on um, shared services. And so we recently designated DHS as the Quality Service Management Office for Cybersecurity Services. And there's a couple areas in there that they're going to start focusing on, specifically the areas of D- DNS, vulnerability disclosure, management program, and SOC as a service. And so with SOC as a service, uh, DHS is in the process now as that management office of basically setting the standards for what for what would any service provider in this space um, need to be able to deliver and what would they need to be able to achieve? This does not mean that DHS will necessarily be the the only service provider in this space. And in fact, Department of Justice is already working to be a service provider in this space um, as they've got a lot of expertise uh, on that front. There's some time to get this up and running. You have to get agencies to start using the services. Do, do you assume that there'll be some sort of impact from the CUSMO in 2021? Will it take to 2022 to get a lot of these services available and up and running? And then, of course, I got to ask, where does the private sector fit into the discussion? My expectation is that in, in 2021, that we will be able to 
get the services um, established. So right now we're basically working with DHS to create the marketplace and we're hoping that'll be in, in this fall. So next fiscal year uh, to be able to start rolling that out. And, and we're looking for a couple ways to do the, the service provisioning. One is that it could be another government agency such as Department of Justice or DHS providing those services. But we're also, uh, DHS is working closely with the General Services Administration so that we can contract for some service capabilities there and bring industry in as well. Um, and that way, you know, again, that QSMO role of DHS is going to be to be sure that the level of service and the standards being met on all those different capabilities um, is the same. But we definitely know that uh, industry is going to be a, a, a significant player in this in this arena. In the meantime, while this gets set, stood up and, and the services are out, is there something that OMB is doing to help agencies move forward with security operations as as a service? Because there are several that have kind of disparate, hey, they have a network operations center, they have a security operations center. Some agencies are bringing that together. Some still have it apart, but have a third layer on top. Is there anything you guys are doing? And, and, and maybe the, the broader question to that is not just security operations service, but there's been some discussion around maybe re-energizing, reinvigorating the cyber stat session. I don't know if you can, if those two are related or if, if the oversight is related or if it's uh, different, but what mechanism are you using to ensure agencies continue to you know move forward with improving their their security operations center? And then maybe we can ask about CyberStat too if they're unrelated. Sort of what I talked about with the the quality service and the the shared service provider is, is on sort of the technical implementation. How do we be sure that we've got the you know technical capabilities and solutions available for agencies to adopt? Um, to to your question, in the meantime, we're focused kind of on the management controls, right? And so you know we uh, asked agencies last year to create SOC maturization plans. And now we have been working with agencies on where they at on those plans. As you mentioned, um, a number of agencies have a variety of different um, security operations centers. We are looking to have them, you know, if not consolidate, at least be sure that they've got a, a focal one and that every everything from, um, you know, a variety of those SOCs is being rolled up and they've got a centralized visibility into their operations. So, so we're continuing to do those. You mentioned CyberStats. Uh, we are in the process of you know, revitalizing the CyberStat process that we've had. And, and this is an area where SOC as a service or SOC maturization um, will likely be something that we will run through the CyberStat process. And, and as we're revamping CyberStat, we're actually looking at a couple different ways. Our, our traditional sort of in-depth you know, one-on-one -on -one engagements with agencies is certainly still on our list. However, we're also trying to do a little more, and this is where SOC may be an excellent um, opportunity for us, where we're actually bringing agencies together to discuss a particular topic and, and have more lessons learned from various agencies as well as, you know, DHS there to, to provide um, additional expertise. Is there a timing around the CyberStat re revitalization effort? Meaning you should see some the, the the new process and the new sets of CyberStat sessions happening this summer, this fall. Anything you can tell? Our goal is is this summer. It, admittedly, we've 
gotten thrown a little bit of a curveball with having to go shift everyone to telework and, and refocus priorities. Um, but this continues to be a priority, and and I am anticipating that we will get it kicked off this summer. How are you guys with DHS as your partner going to continue to use the data from the FISMA report to Congress to to continue to improve federal cyber efforts? In a couple ways. One is just the socialization, right? We we certainly feel that having trans uh, transparency and having transparency on how agencies are doing and having that out in the public um, is, is positive because it adds a little more attention. It adds management attention. And, and I think in a cybersecurity, there's a lot of technical things and a lot of tools uh, that we need to implement. However, a lot of it comes down to management attention um, and, and leadership, making sure that, again, they're taking that risk management approach and paying attention to the things that are most critical. Um, in addition to that, uh, so continued public reporting is going to be a part of it. One of the things we do every year as we look at the FISMA report is evaluate how we need to raise the bar, right? So we set cross-agency priority goals, we set targets for agencies to, to meet, and then we continue to ratchet up that, that bar, and we continue to assess do we need additional metrics or different metrics to come in, although we like to have a, a good amount of consistency so that we can have uh, good trend lines there. Um, and then additionally, we sit down with the CISO Council and take a look at how many of the incidents are in unknown and why is that and can we peel back the onion and, and what do we need to do either from a policy standpoint from an operational standpoint at an agency with department of homeland security to to be able to make the report more valuable um, and most importantly be sure that while we're in the process of collecting the data and creating the report um, we're actually enhancing the cybersecurity posture um, of federal agencies where is the CISO Council going in, in the rest of 2020? How are you using this report, for instance, to help determine priorities? Walk me through some of the, some of the goals of the CISO Council. Really, our agendas fall into, into a couple of uh, buckets, if you will. One is around emerging either capabilities or emerging issues that we, that we need to talk about. And so you mentioned zero trust. That is certainly something that we've had um, a lot of conversations around. And our conversations... Um, are focused really in two areas. Again, what does a CISO need operationally? And then what do they need from a policy standpoint? So one of the big big pushes of the CISO Council is to, you know, for me to socialize ideas around policy updates or changes that we might need, or for CISOs to bring up um, re and request updates where they're going to need them. And then we also really like to focus and, and find a lot of value in sharing lessons learned. And so when, a, when a, one agency has done something well or has made strides in zero trust or, or some other area, we like to bring them in be, and we've found that some of the best dialogue we get um, is when you know, we've got an agency up telling their story and other uh, agencies asking them for, for help, for assistance, for, or just for more details of you know, how they were able to achieve those results. Grant, this has been a fascinating conversation. As I said, I could talk to you all day, but I do know you have another job to do. So uh, let me thank you for your time. Grant Schneider is the Federal Chief Information Security Officer at the Office of Management Budget. Grant, again, thank you so much for time. Great to catch up. Jason, thank you. My pleasure, as always. Enjoy the conversation and, uh, and everything we can do to you know, make, our, make our agencies more secure from a cyber standpoint.
I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this part of the show, we continue to talk with the Office of Management and Budget. We shift gears a little bit, and I play the rest of my conversation with former Federal Chief Information Officer Suzette Kent during her exit interview. We start out by continuing to talk about shared services and the challenges of getting agencies the funding needed to continually modernize their shared services systems. The business model piece is interesting because one of the biggest challenges with previous shared services attempts is the old Economy Act. And you're probably much more familiar with it today than you were ever before. And (laughs) you're one of the foremost experts on the law from 1934 that basically says agencies can't collect more money for a service than its costs. So right. unlike, a, unlike a private sector firm, which you build in a profit and you can use that profit to reinvest. So is that why the, the private sector has to play a bigger role in shared services? Because getting that law changed is just basically too big of a lift. So how do you kind of address that barrier is through partnering with the private sector. Was that, was that your thinking? I would actually say we change the way that we're thinking about cost, because if you look at private sector, if you go look at how investment firms look at companies, a healthy company invests a certain amount in R&D ongoing. A healthy company spends a certain amount in technology maintenance. Why wouldn't that be part of cost? Why wouldn't we think about some of those same things? We're not out to make a profit, but we should think about it as how do we maintain high performing systems in a manner that is aligned with what we know to be sustainable and prudent across many industries. So the concept that you would provide a service and the price of that service would never change year over year is nonsensical. I mean, find someplace else, find another industry where that happens, right? Maybe I'd like to study that. I haven't seen one. I also, again, from kind of looking at how you value companies and how you look at what is the expected run operate numbers, those, those things are expected. And so the way that we fund shared services and the way that those sit in agency budgets is kind of not aligned with that. I mean, maybe... You know, we, we should not only have some estimate, we should include it in O&M in a different way. Or we should look at, you know, if an agency is a QSMO, that there's a portion of their appropriation that is aligned to that, right? And that that's part of the commitment. We're just not there now. I've actually talked to some of the CIOs of other countries that are, have those types of utilities and looked at how they do some of those things. And, and again, there, there are those who do it, there's opportunity, but it's gonna take, it's gonna take uh, some commitment with reworking some of the laws as well as rethinking how we consider that life cycle of software. So let me just put a finer point on this to make sure I understand. What you're saying is you're either A, reinterpreting the Economy Act of 1934 to say, well, why, why wouldn't R&D and, and improving agency, improving systems be part of those operating maintenance costs? Or you're saying we're going to ask Congress 
to reinterpret or to changing the law, I don't think is, is going to happen. So, so help me understand what you're really saying here. I'm saying think of it differently. And I'm going to use, in 1934, I don't think anyone was thinking about software maintenance when that law was created. You could probably find airplane maintenance, maybe ammunition, you know, uh, weapons maintenance. You might find maintenance of roads and waterways. We've evolved to a different point. So what I'm saying is leverage a common framework of what it takes to maintain and think about that cost factor differently, right? That, that's one way to get to a different place. I also think that it's worth looking at, you know, is there a different definition of shared services consumption versus the way that we allocate, you know, for other types of things. Um, having watched that implemented in many global companies, especially when, you know, you've got different holding company structures and things like that, that's the way that, you know, companies not only get to it, but they make it, it, it still has to be competitive, right? If I'm the CIO and I'm not getting better service, less expensive, more secure, right? I, I still have to have a value proposition. And so there are ways to construct that, that, that would require that, you know, we, we look at our operating model a little different. Talking about some of your, your accomplishments, and I want to go back to one other one, the federal data strategy. And I think a lot of us in the outside world look at this and go, another strategy, another attempt to fix a longstanding systemic problem but you f believe that this strategy is not just more words on paper, but you're seeing agencies act because they're understanding the value of data and what it means in that longer term. You mentioned AI, machine learning, intelligent automation. Walk me through the federal data strategy and, and, and the impact it is having and you think it will have in the future. Yeah. The federal data strategy, right, is how we set kind of the long pole right? And we set the North Star. And those are the things that we aspire to do. What's change, and that's where we want to go. And what's important about doing that is we have to start making strides towards not only being a data-driven government, but understanding the, the power that we have in the end data and what those necessary mechanisms, protocols, and processes are to not only use that to serve to, to provide better government service, to make more informed decisions, the kinds of things that we know, but also to stimulate the economy and to protect civil liberties and to protect American citizens as technology capabilities allow other people to do things with data. So think about, you know, kind of the North Star, but what's also, as you and I talked about kind of the, I'll call it the attention span of government, you also have to have near-term win. Folks aren't going to get real interested in where you want to go in 10 years, right? We can all kind of come up with a fantasy. It, but it becomes reality when you have a year-over-year -year plan with specific activities that make your steps towards that and you deliver on them. And that's what's been important about the federal data strategy is the year one action plan and, you know, the website is public. You can see the progress that's being made. The team is now building the, the next year's action plan. We were able to use some of the sharing protocols and uh, some of the analysis that we've done actually to share data, you know, during COVID. And 
that was a kind of an exciting outcome. That was an example of the technology and uh, data work that was being done having an impact that matters to citizens. You, you look at lots of different industries where they're asking you know, for federal data. What was also really important is that it is the foundation for better analytics. It is the foundation for whether it's AI or machine learning. Um, it's the foundation for making informed management decisions. And there's a lot of things that we want to understand better. This helps us make progress towards that. And, you know, you hear all the buzzwords, data is the new oil, data is the, you know, new industry. But when you think about where we're going, whether it's something like coming up with a you know, vaccine for a disease or autonomous vehicles or understanding the important correlations between certain socioeconomic factors, those things need data. And, and so when I look at some of the things that happened and I think about the world that I want to live in in the next 10, 20 you know, plus years, that is an important roadmap. And agencies were already on the path. This gives us a framework to, to, to help bring them together and let them attack some of the common problems. I look at it the same way as kind of getting some of the policy barriers out of the way. We have to look at it holistically and balance acquisition of information, collection of information, use of information, technology protection of information as the information life cycle, not in little bitty stovepipes that argue with each other and actually create more bureaucracy for agencies to deal with. There's plenty more on the data, but let me move us on because I want to touch upon the to-do list. What's left to do besides a lot that <laughs> uh, whether it's Maria as the deputy federal CIO or if uh, eventually a new federal CIO will be named, what, what kind of list did you leave them of, of some other top priorities that they should focus on you know, maybe short-term and long-term? Well, we talked about federal data strategy. Modernization journey never ends. I, I'm happy to see both from Congress and from citizens the interest in modernization. You know, we still have to do work on how resources are aligned to what that journey looks like. Maria has a phenomenal track record in modernization. So, you know, both her know-how and um, passion for it will be a great driver there. You know, Grant is really focusing on some of the supply chain and, and ongoing cyber uh, activities. Uh, Jordan Burris is took on some of the identity things that we saw kind of come out of. I would say they became more important as we have a broader workforce working remotely and we're seeking to expand things more into a digital world. You know, we already made some of the enhancements in the ICAMS policy that was kind of at the beginning of when I came in, but that got the diff you know, that got the kind of person versus machine versus software. It, it got some of, some of the nuances, but there's much more that we need to do. And, I, and I'll go back to the, how we get Congress and other folks on our side is, and I, I, I shouldn't even say on our side, get them to understand that what we're trying to do in technology is exactly the same as any mission objective and that they're tied together. So, so we have to talk, you know, in terms of the outcomes and, you know, whether we're getting fresh food inspected and on the table faster or we're recovering faster from, you know, a hurricane or, you know, we're preventing a power outage because we saw X and Y and Z. 
talk about those things, not whether I'm using container strategy one or two. That that's going to help, you know, advance the agenda. And I think that we also saw in the recent last four months a great partnership between the CIOs and industry partners. We were able to kind of clear away some of the bureaucracy that is normally in some of the processes. And I, I hope that doesn't go away. And I hope the plain, you know, very focused dialogues continue. Interesting. All right. There's plenty to talk there. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can finish up our conversation. My guest today is Suzette Kent, the former Federal Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is former Federal CIO, Suzette Kent. Suzette, this is an exit interview. So I want to bring you down from the 50,000 foot level because you mentioned things like IT modernization, which every CIO who comes after you will focus on. But are there one or two things that you would say, you know, if Maria and or the staff within the OFCO could get done before the end of the year, what would that be? Tick, I know that is uh, right in in there in the crosshairs. Um, I know the year two action items for the federal data strategy, the Identity policy things, I was not talking at a, you know, 100,000 foot level. There are some very specific things that there's some discussions on. And I I think that the letters that Senator Hassan sent is going to create an opportunity for a dialogue about how we fund modernization in a way to actually get something done. So $25 million in TMF, it's better than zero. But when we look at what it takes um, and the number of legacy systems that we still have, the number of of processes that are still identified to be digitized, we've got to go faster. And we see most agencies at, you know, flat to barely increase in, you know, ongoing appropriations each year. And they don't have working capital funds, right? Something's, Something's got to give. And uh, if we continue to elevate the conversation about modernization, it is my hope. I know that the OFCIO team and the CIOs are going to continue the dialogue, but I hope that you know others will listen and understand and help find solutions. You mentioned TMF. It's one of those programs I think is a good idea, but I'm not sure it's ever going to really have the impact that people think it can or should. I think the working capital funds are much more likely to have that impact that, that I think Congress and, and many thought. Uh, at one point, someone mentioned, uh, this is several years ago, that, that a good number for TMF would be $3 billion. That's how much technical debt the U.S. has or even pushing more. And I know the administration has asked for $100 million, $125 million. What, What's a good number in your eyes if you would be willing to, to go outside of what the budget request has been the last few years? Jason, I don't know that I have, quote, a good number, because when you say modernization, some define it by age of the the legacy system. That's not the framework that I use. I use it based on risk, and I use it based on what is underserving citizens. And there are some of those things that we can do that are not as pricey. What's more important is that during transformation, you're building the new system or you're moving to a new thing and you're paying for the old thing at the same time. So even when you're doing things that are not substantial, you know, price points, 
it is still an increase. And it is an increase to move. And if we're actually using a risk filter, I'm going to use it. I'm going to blend TMF and I'm going to use my, the example of my friends at HUD um, who are doing one of the TMF awards. And it's one of the things that I've been very excited about. And I've shared that, you know, with Kevin Cook and David Chow and Kathleen Cheeseman. Um, every time they come and do an update, you know, they have five systems to transform. They started with two. And the TMF funded two. There's three more to go. But they had a mandate of don't impact the business, understand, improve, do these tools work, do our estimating models work, you know, what, what do we understand, not understand, and learn with these first two before we do the next three. And that, in my view, is an absolutely fantastic example of a TMF success. Because what they learned, they've been able to share with other agencies who have legacy COBOL systems. They're able to, to get, if an estimate is, you know, 30% plus or minus versus 5% plus or minus, that 5%, that, that's meaningful. And that's kind of some of the things they were able to do. Uh, what they were also able to figure out is how do you do something like this without significantly disrupting the business? That's how we maintain services. But they also show that you have to have that other funding source. So those are examples of, you know, kind of the, the things that, that we learned. And I would like that number to be put together by agencies and those who've done application rationalization in the way that, that we ask them to, they know what their number is, but there's some that haven't done that. And so I, I don't know what that, you know, Delta is. But when I look at the average size, you know, of the big ticket items, you know, for most of the agencies, we are in the billion range. All right, let me try one more time then. Instead of a number, okay, if you don't want to tell me it's a billion, three billion, five billion, whatever it is, would you say a better approach, maybe a percentage of an agency's IT budget that if Congress could say, you don't like that one either, go ahead. No, well, no, you know, here, here's the only reason I, I, I shook my head. That works when you're not trying to dig yourself out of technical debt, right? No, that, I mean, like, let me, let me back up because maybe it's more that let's pick on VA. VA has got a budget of $4.3 billion. Congress would give VA $400 million, so 10% of their budget to extra to work only on IT modernization. So that's where I was going versus taking 10% out of hide or 3% out of hide. So that way it's not a flat fee per agency or, or a bucket of money but every agency has specific money dedicated for IT modernization to get off those legacy systems. And instead of saying, well, we'll just put a billion in and for DOD, a billion is spare change. Well, for education or for uh, NSF, that would be like, you know, you and I winning a billion dollars. So that's yeah. why I say maybe it's a percentage of their IT budget that Congress could give them above and beyond. I don't know. Um, it's it, it, throwing it, spaghetti it, against the wall. Well, I was going to say that might be an, an easy place to start. But I would also go back to like use an agency like SBA, right? They've, they've done substantial modernization. That percentage might not be the right fit. Look at a couple of the agencies with the most significant technical debt and the oldest systems. That number is bigger. That's why I would drive it from the application rationalization plans. And I would use that, you know, risk-based framework. We know agencies know from their FISMA analysis which systems are the riskiest, which ones they have, you know, which are their high value assets. They also have their list of what processes that they want to digitize. And, and I think, you know, those filters, 
agencies that have underinvested, their number is bigger. There are some agencies who've been more aggressive, their number is smaller. And you know, that also sounds like, right, if I'm a CIO, you're like, wait a minute, I'm getting less money because I've done a good job. <laughs> I don't like that message. But if we're being, you know, prudent Americans with our, uh, and being good stewards of taxpayer money, we're using that risk-based framework. And, and I'll add one other thing, Jason. I saw this at agencies, and, and I used to be, I was very mindful of it in business because I knew the, the kind of what those different audiences did. But you have to ask the question, what's the capacity for change that the operational unit can stand? Some can move faster and they can take more. Others where we have a distributed footprint that covers every single state in the nation, we have some challenges with moving through those very quickly. So we have to think about what that deployment, and, and we saw that when we were rolling out cloud email to a lot of places. We saw some that just moved like that. And we saw others where we had to send tiger teams in to, to really help them along. And the, it was the exact same technology. It was the, it was the receiving kind of business unit. So this has been a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you all day, but unfortunately, I think we're going to say we're almost out of time. So let me just ask you one last question. And it goes back to, of all the things you learned, of all of your experiences you've had over the last two and a half years, what's the message you think that CIOs, folks in the program offices, folks in the, the, the other parts of government, what, what is your message to them? And then beyond thank you for your service, beyond you're doing a wonderful job, which all of those things you are welcome to say. What's the thing that they, you know, from your perspective that they, that you've learned that they should know that they should keep in mind as technology modernization, as all these efforts continue? I'm going to say two things to the CIOs. And we've talked about one of them many times during this is talk about your accomplishments and your outcomes in, in the way that it's achieving mission and serving the citizens, right? Because that, um, that really is everything that, that we're aspiring to do. Um, the second thing that, that I would say, and I think they've been really good at it, but I hope they don't ever stop, is raise issues with what's getting in your way. And, and don't let the, it's always been done like this, or it's a 1934 law. That's not a reason. That is not a reason. There And there are things that you know we can do to remove those barriers it may not be fast it may be frustrating but if we don't ask the questions who will all right very good Suzette Ken is the former federal CIO Suzette thank you so much for your time and of course thank you for your service to the country thanks Jason for having me I'm Jason Miller and you've been listening to ask the CIO on federal news network You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Hey, electrical contractors. I'm Matt from ABB. Are rising costs and product delays keeping you up at night? We can help you contractor better. 
ABB's contractor resources are designed to help you increase productivity and profitability on your commercial construction projects. Check out Contractor Better today. Visit go.abb.com. Slash contractor better.